In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, that sound you're hearing, every time it seems Adam gets up to read scripture, is not feedback. That is, that's that time of year, it's the furnace. <laughs> the furnace, which we usually don't hear at this service, but we hear it frequently at the 8 o'clock service, and we refer to it as the angelic choir. So <laughs> that's the noise you're hearing. It's not feedback, it's the furnace. So Merry Christmas. Some things never change. In early November, I visited a friend from college who lives in Hammond, Indiana. Hammond is the last city in northwest Indiana before you get to Illinois, and Hammond's most famous suburb, Chicago. On election day, I went with my friend as he voted. His polling place is the Gene Shepherd Community Center. Now, Gene Shepherd isn't a household name, but you would know his voice and you probably heard it this past week in a movie he wrote and narrated, A Christmas Story, the movie that plays all day on Christmas Day on cable TV about Ralphie and his family in the city of Homan. Gene Shepard lived on Cleveland Street in Hessville, one of the neighborhoods of Hammond. Interestingly, the house used for Ralphie's house in the movie is located in Cleveland, Ohio, not on Cleveland Street in Hammond. That house in Ohio is now a museum, complete with a gift shop next door. A Christmas Story is based on Shepard's life growing up in Hammond and the friends he grew up with there. One of Ralphie's friends is named Flick, and I hope I don't give away the movie, but Flick's the one whose tongue gets stuck to the flagpole. There's a local watering hole in Hammond known as Flick's Tavern, and it predates the movie. Much about Hammond today looks and feels the same as the movie. Sure, people have newer cars, flat screen TVs, and cell phones, but the neighborhoods are old school in a way we don't see in Southern California or even in Central Indiana where I grew up. When I visit my college friend, we usually go to one of two restaurants for lunch, either the Kennedy Cafe on Kennedy Avenue or the Wheel on Indianapolis Boulevard, both restaurants are owned and operated by Polish immigrants and give you more food than you can possibly eat for next to nothing. I mean, really cheap. My friend's parents built their house in 1959 and lived in it as long as they were able. I had visited my friend and his parents at that house when I was in college, and the house looked and felt the same last month as it did in 1985. The kitchen had been upgraded and the above-ground pool was no longer in the backyard, but otherwise, things hadn't changed. On that same trip, I visited my dad in Indianapolis. He turned 86 while I was there, and it was his first birthday since my mom passed away in July of this year. On his birthday, I took him for a drive around the area where he grew up. In contrast to Hammond, which looks the same as it did in 1985, my dad's old neighborhood, New Augusta, is barely recognizable. The people who bought my grandmother's house in 1989, it was 100 years old then, they had moved the front steps from the south side of the house to the east side of the house. The house next door, where my great-grandparents had lived, was yellow now. It had always been white. Young and Sons Insurance was now an Allstate agent. The Youngs had been good friends of my grandparents. And the building where Fergie's barbershop had been was still there, but Fergie was long gone. 
Dr. Dupler's dentist office is now a CPA's office. Made me wonder what they did with the spit sink. My dad and I had lunch at Steak and Shake, the best hamburger my dad had had for a long time, because all the old-time restaurants were closed, even Snyder's Dinner Bell, where they had great chicken and noodles. Today's gospel takes us back to the beginning. Not the beginning of our Lord's earthly life, like we might expect at Christmas, but to our Lord's beginning of the earth's life. This is a beginning that makes Hammond, Indiana look modern. And it's a beginning that we need to think about during these days of Christmas on this, the sixth day of Christmas. So let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. In the beginning was the word. But what beginning is this? The beginning of the incarnation? No. The beginning of the church? No. This is literally the beginning that has no beginning. The same beginning as Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before creation, in other words, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, which verse 14 tells us became flesh, incarnate, was there as creator, creating in the beginning. The incarnate Word is creator. And how else is he described in these verses? Well, he's described as light, life, full of grace and truth, glorious, has made the Father known, and is the only Son. Our Lord Jesus Christ was all these things in the beginning, and as it was in the beginning is now and will be forever. Yes, while Noah was building the ark, God the Son was the light of the world. While Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, God the Son was the giver of life. While David was committing adultery with Bathsheba and arranging for her husband's murder, God the Son was full of grace and truth. While Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tied up and thrown into the fiery furnace, God the Son was showing the glory of God. The Word of God, not the Bible, but the incarnate Word, God the Son, was there in the beginning. And what He was then... He was when he was in the manger, when he was teaching in the synagogue, when he was hanging on the cross, and is now when he is seated in glory. And doesn't it say in Hebrews 13, 8, I know it's in my Bible, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The church has always taught that the incarnate word is the eternal word. Yes, the incarnate word began as an embryo in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, and yes, the incarnate word was a baby in a manger, visited by shepherds and later by magi. The incarnate word grew from an embryo to a baby, to a boy, to a tween, to a teen, and to a man. But he is still the eternal word. A baby not yet speaking is the word of God to man. And being eternal, he does not change. Most people think of, of eternity as a long time. We even use it that way metaphorically. Father Kraft used to tell, us, tell me stories of sermons that seemed to last an eternity when he was playing clarinet in a church as an undergraduate. Vestry members and acolytes sometimes speak of an eternity waiting for Father Doran to arrive. <laughs> but that metaphor is wrong because eternity isn't a long time, it's no time, or it's all time, or it's timeless. It's outside of time. Very difficult for us to understand. 
Since the eternal word doesn't change, neither does his goodness. God's goodness was the same before Gutenberg invented movable type as it was after the Bible was distributed widely. God's glory was the same before King James had the scriptures translated for the common man as it was after people could read the Bible in their own language. The eternal word was not different before the sexual revolution than he is today. He cannot be different because he cannot change. Change requires time, and nothing eternal has any of that. God didn't change at the Council of Nicaea, at the Great Schism in 1054, or when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, or even after Vatican II. And thank God he doesn't change, right? If what is wrong today is right tomorrow, who could live with that kind of confusion? I'm talking about God's standards, not society's standards. It would be wrong for me to knock you down, take your car keys, and steal your car and drive it home and use it as my own. If I did that, I hope you would call the police and have me arrested. If God changed, such an act could be right tomorrow. I could take your car, and there's nothing you could do about it. I suppose you could take it back because there'd be nothing I could do about that either. But I'm guessing that if one commandment were to slip away, like thou shalt not steal, pretty soon all ten wouldn't even be good suggestions. Some things never change, and our Lord is one of them. He was there in the beginning. Today's gospel begins with in the beginning, and it ends with grace and truth. The only time our Lord is mentioned in today's gospel by name is in verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth have always been God's way of operating, but the baby in a manger shows grace and truth as it has never been shown before. Remember, grace is getting more than you deserve. We don't deserve a Savior who can take away our sins, but we get a Savior who not only takes away our sins, he helps us to stop sinning. We don't deserve a parish that holds fast to the ancient Christian faith, but we get a parish that holds to the faith and has property overlooking the ocean. We don't deserve eyes to see the beauty of the ocean, but we get eyes to see its majesty, ears to hear its power, and some people I know even swim in it or surf on it. That's grace, getting more than you deserve. Truth is paired with grace. People almost always like grace, but they don't always like truth. The truth hurts, we say. Yet we all seem to believe that truth matters. Imagine with me, if you will, a culture in which truth didn't matter. In other words, lying was the norm, and it was the acceptable norm. We wouldn't need sermons in church because listeners wouldn't believe anything the preacher said. Only a fool would. There would be no newscasts or news channels, since there would be no facts to communicate. Politicians would probably be the most respected people in such a culture, for they would be the most normal, even the most down-to-earth. The eternal word, the incarnate word, full of grace and truth, and that from the beginning, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright explores what he calls an unsatisfactory view in much contemporary thinking, which he calls the doctrine of progress. He defines it this way. 
Everything is moving toward a better, fuller, more perfect end. And if there had to be suffering on the way, if there had to be problems as things unwound, so be it. Such things are the broken eggs from which delicious omelets are made. Bishop Wright continues, When people say that certain things are unacceptable now that we're living in the 21st century, they are appealing to an assumed doctrine of progress, and of progress once more in a particular direction. We are taught to bow down before this progress. It is unstoppable. Who wants to be behind the times, to be yesterday's people? Given the events of the past century, Bishop Wright concludes, it seems remarkable that the belief in progress still survives and triumphs. Thus, the timeless and eternal, the grace and truth of our Lord, seem irrelevant as we proceed quickly toward things that are moving forward. Who, after all, can stop time? And let's think about all the progress we've made, shall we? Social media connects more people than ever before. Yet recent studies show that people who use social media are more depressed than those who do not. We've nearly done away with capital punishment and in its place roasted alive anyone with a contrary point of view. Our justice system was founded on the idea that a man is innocent until proven guilty. That it is better for 10 guilty men to go free than for one innocent man to go to prison. Now, any accusation, especially in the press, indicates guilt even before charges are brought. We Californians, concerned about the environment as we often are, have outlawed single-use plastic bags at the grocery store. As a result, outlaws are now leaving grocery stores with cartloads of groceries unpaid for. Back to Bishop Wright. We all know that sexual licentiousness creates massive unhappiness in families and individual lives. But we live in the 21st century, don't we? And we don't want to say that adultery is wrong. Bishop Wright further notes this. Only two generations ago, many communities regarded adultery the way they now regard pedophilia, which is worrying on both counts, he says. Unhappiness, in fact, is the usual result of most of the so-called progress we've made in the last 50 years. As Christians, we should stop looking at our progress and return again to the timeless. St. Gregory of Nazianzus, Bishop of Constantinople, writes this in the fourth century. He who has no mother in heaven is now born without father on earth. He who is without flesh becomes incarnate. The word puts on a, bob a body. The invisible is seen. He whom no hand can touch is handled. The timeless has a beginning. The Son of God becomes Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. For the sake of my flesh, he takes on flesh. For the sake of my soul, he is united to a rational soul, purifying like by like. In every way, he became human except for sin. The self-existent comes into being. The uncreated is created. He shares in the poverty of my flesh that I may share in the riches of of his Godhead. Alleluia, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. O come, let us adore him. Alleluia. <laughs>